Revelation chapter 1. We finished the uh, introduction and the prologue a few weeks ago. Last week we, uh, we waded into the waters of, of the, the vision of the glorified Christ. But we're going to begin in verse 12 uh, this morning. So let's read together. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, the King James says, or lampstands. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these or hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. I want to speak to you this morning on the vision of the glorified Christ, and I'm going to ask Preacher Larry if he will ask God's blessing upon the word. (coughs) So, uh, John has greeted the people. He told them, he said, I'm your companion. Uh, I'm a partaker of the sufferings and the tribulation that is normative of the Christian experience. Uh, Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. The Christian life is not easy. And we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, We read in the book of Acts. Now in verse 10 we find out that John was in the spirit uh, on the Lord's day. and, And we talked about that to some degree last week. And he heard behind him a voice uh, like a trumpet. And we get to verse 12, and uh, we'll go to the first slide if we could. Thank you. And we get to the verse, uh, verse 12, and he says, I turned to see the voice. Now that's an interesting language, isn't it? How do you see a voice? But this is part of the apocalyptic vision, uh, the language and the imagery here. Uh, John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Now, John had heard Jesus' voice many, many times. Uh, I talked about this last week. Probably one of Jesus' best friends in, uh, in all the world. And he had heard Christ speak to him on many occasions. He had leaned upon the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. But this time, the voice is a little different. Because he sees Christ as the glorified Son of God now and Son of Man. He doesn't see Him after the flesh anymore. He doesn't know Him just as His old friend that walked the, uh, the shores of Galilee and the hills of Judea. Now He sees Jesus high and lifted up and glorified as He is. And folks, that's how Jesus is right this very minute. He is high and lifted up. He's glorified and He is amazing. If He were to walk through these doors today... You and I would fall on our faces just like John. And we would say, God have mercy on me. He turned to see the voice that spoke with him. 
and being turned, the first thing he sees, interestingly enough, are seven candlesticks. Now, the King James says candlesticks. Every other translation is probably going to say lampstand. The Greek word is luknia, and uh, candlestick sometimes gives a false impression. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, what, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, <laughs> Jack jump over the candlestick, right? We don't picture him jumping over a menorah, do we? But, uh, but, but this would be imagery very familiar to the Jewish people. And I think they would, they would hearken back to, um, to the lampstand in the temple and the tabernacle. The number seven is significant. The number seven is Greek, and uh, excuse me, hepta is Greek in the, um, for the number seven. And you'll see the heptatic structure throughout the book of Revelation. You'll see the number seven over and over and over again. But we see in Zechariah 4, verse 2, uh, Zechariah sees a vision. He saw a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes. And we know that the Spirit of God uh, is, is filling the lampstands. And he see, the church is precious. You know, the church is made out of gold. The lampstands, we're, we're going to be told in just a moment, what the lampstand represents. But the lampstand is made out of what material? Gold. It's precious. Now, I know some people that don't think much about the church. There's a growing movement in the world now to say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And uh, I want to tell you, that's straight out of the pit of hell. Because Jesus died for the church. The church is precious to him. And the church is, uh, is very important in the heart of God. So you can't love Jesus and hate the church. It just won't work. All right. Now verse 13. In the middle of the seven lampstands, we see one like unto the Son of Man. Do you know there's a man in heaven right now? Jesus Christ will always be a man. Now he's fully God and fully man. But right now at the right hand of the Father, there is a man who is our high priest. Now why is that such good news? Because he knows what it feels like to be like you and me. He was tempted in every way just like you and I are, yet without sin. And so we have a merciful and a faithful high priest. And we can come boldly now to the throne of grace because he's there. Christ is in the midst of the seven lampstands. In Matthew 18, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 20, Jesus says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, I know we don't see him today, but Jesus Christ is here. And that ought to give us all a moment of pause, shouldn't it? Because this is a holy place. You know, sometimes I think, you know, we ought to just take our shoes off and just lay prostrate before him, just, just as a, a, an acknowledgement that, yes, the Lord is here in our midst. And he is awesome. He's a holy God. I think we've become too comfortable with God. But he's here in our midst. Now, the titles of Jesus are going to be crucial to help us understand the rest of the book. 
especially the letters to the seven churches. But I saw uh, one like unto the Son of Man, and he's clothed with a garment down to the foot. And gird about the paps with a golden girdle. Uh, let's go to Daniel chapter 10. I'm breaking the pattern of my PowerPoint here. But I feel led to do so. Daniel chapter 10. James, I'm coming for you. <laughs> now, uh, in apocalyptic literature, this is not uncommon. Someone, before they received uh, an important message from God, they would receive a revelation from God of the glory of God. And it was always very uh, awe-inspiring and, and the, the person experiencing it would certainly fear and tremble. You know, anytime an angel or God would appear to a human being, he would always say two things. He would say, don't be afraid and get up. <laughs> because that was a response. And that's a natural response. It's a, and that's an appropriate response. But in Daniel chapter 10, and uh, James, I'm trying my best to get there <laughs> so that I can follow along with you as you read. Um, that's what I get for deviating from my, my outline here. But in Daniel 10, uh, I want you to read for me uh, verses 1 through uh, 7. All right. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing, and he and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I daily was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girt about with fine gold of Euphaz. His body was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in the color of polished brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a, of a multitude and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the, vo the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, 
which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand, and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there. All right, thank you. Don't turn away from Daniel, okay? I want you to stay in Daniel. But I want you to see, now I don't think this is Jesus here because in verse 13 that he read, the prince of Persia was able to withstand him. And I don't think an angel could stand against Jesus for a minute. So, uh, but you see a lot of similarity between the, the appearance of this, this being and the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But in verse 14 then, uh, we see that the vision, that this, this uh, figure clothed down to the feet with the gold sash, the, that he's going to tell Daniel what's going to happen to his people in the last days. And, and Jesus Christ is going to come tell John what's going to happen to his people in the last days. Now, while we're in Daniel, uh, James, let's flip back to Daniel 7. And this is Daniel's vision that he saw. Okay, uh, if you would read verses 9 through 15. Daniel 7, 9 through 15. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels of burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. <laughs> they trouble you too, my friend, I promise you. Um, let's go back to the book of Revelation now. Thank you for that, James. You can put your microphone on standby, but you don't, don't turn it off, maybe. We'll see. Okay, so Revelation 1, 12, uh, 1, 13, I saw 
uh, one like unto the Son of Man. That came right out. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Now that came right out of Daniel that, uh, that James just read. The Son of Man. And Jesus applied this term to himself. And in Mark 13, he applied it to himself on the, uh, uh, the Olivet Discourse. The Son of Man coming. So the Son of Man is a reference to the Messiah predicted in Daniel. Now, when he was crucified, all of his clothes were taken away. We don't talk about that a lot. But that was a symbol of his humiliation and of his uh, the, the taking on the sin of the world upon him. But now we see him with a garment clothed down to the feet, which is a symbol of royalty, of dignity. Perhaps we're to see him as a priest, prophet, and king. Um, and I think also a judge. Look with me in Revelation um, 15. Revelation 15. All right, James, you want to read verse 6? All right, so we see that these angels are about to pour out the judgment of God, and they're clothed in a similar fashion. Now, we get to verse 14, and it says, His head and his hair are white like wool. Do you remember reading something about that uh, in Daniel chapter 7? Remember that? In Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Whose hair was white like wool in Daniel chapter 7? Anybody remember the title? The Ancient of Days. That's a reference to God Almighty, the Father. Now, uh, some see here the white hair as a symbol of purity. Certainly that is. He's pure. He's altogether uh, undefiled and separate from sinners. Uh, Isaiah says, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be uh, red like crimson, they shall be white as snow, even like wool, right? But I think we're to see here, I think what we're to see here is that Jesus Christ is described in the same way that the Ancient of Days is described. That Jesus Christ is, he is the Son of Man, but He's also Almighty God. <laughs> I heard a popular preacher, and I, I'm not going to give his name this morning. If I did, most of you would know it. He said that Jesus never claimed to be God. I thought, man, have you ever read your Bible? Jesus said, before Abraham was... I am. The Jews knew he was claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to kill him. They understood exactly what he was saying. 
His eyes are as a flame of fire. God sees everything. Now, I know the, the old Christmas song says that Santa Claus does, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, so on and so forth. Uh, that's, that's, that's a child's song. God does see everything. He knows everything. And it boggles my mind, but he loves me anyway. <laughs> he, lo he sees everything, but he loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to, to do. To we have to give an account. God sees and knows everything. His eyes are penetrating. They're piercing. When I come to God, I hate to get up and move around too much because I know I've, it's distracting. But, you know, when I come before God and I get down on my knees to pray... There's absolutely no need for me to offer up any pretense and pretend like everything's okay. You know what I'm talking about. When we're down on our knees praying about everybody else's problems and how God needs to fix them. Y'all don't pray that way, do you? And God says, uh, there's some things you and I need to talk about. And I'll be honest with you, when I get down on my knees and sincerely pray to God, uh, nine times out of ten, he's not talking to me about the problems that he has with other people. He's talking about the issues that he and I have. And that we need to deal with and that I need to deal with. That's why he says, come let us reason together. Let's talk about it. You know, you can talk to God about anything. There's nothing you can't talk to God about. Now, we'd much rather talk to a person, wouldn't we? I'd rather pick up the phone and talk to my best friend and, and, and explain because they're going to be sympathetic to me. And they're going to tell me what I want to hear most of the time. They're going to uphold me in the, uh, the directives that I want to take. But come to the Lord with everything. Take your burden to the Lord. He sees you. He knows everything. And He loves you anyway. And there's grace. Don't let sin keep you out of the prayer closet. Run to the arms of the Lord. You know, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, Adam didn't go looking out for God. He was hiding, wasn't he? That's what we do. Human nature is to hide from God when we sin. But when Adam sinned, we see God coming after him. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Now, God knew where he was. But he was wanting Adam, he was wanting Adam to, to confess to him. And what did Adam do? He did the same thing that we do. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, and as the old joke goes, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. How many of us are blaming everybody else? Well, God, I can't do the right thing because of this. You know what they did to me. God says, yeah, I do know what they did to you, but I'm asking you to forgive. I'm asking you to be, I hate this expression, the bigger person. I'm asking you to submit yourself to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because God's word is quick and powerful and he sees all. His eyes are as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass. Brass is often a symbol of judgment uh, in the scripture. The sin offerings were uh, synonymous with, with brass. 
And uh, many commentators are going to see this as a, a symbol of judgment against sin in the church and in the world. As we get to Revelation 2 and 3, you'll find out that the churches have sin in them too. Uh, and God's going to deal with that. Now, um, his voice, the Bible says, is as the sound of many waters. Before, in verse 10, John heard a voice, and the voice was like what? Trumpet, right? But now his voice is like the, the voice of many waters. Uh, have any of you ever been to Niagara Falls? Uh, anybody on the Canadian side? I'm told that was even more impressive than the American side. What did it sound like? Was it an awesome sound? Amazing. You hear the water. And perhaps John, you know, he, he's there on the Isle of Patmos. He's used to the Aegean Sea and the breakers hitting, hitting the rocks there. I don't know. But um, what an awesome thing that Christ, is the, his voice is as the sound of many waters. The very voice that, think about this, the very voice that spoke the universe into existence, let there be light. When God created the world, all he did was speak. Didn't take any effort. God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was finished. You know, Because he spoke the world into existence. And now John hears that voice. That voice is the sound of many waters, as the voice of a multitude. Ezekiel 43, 2, uh, he says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters. Ezekiel 43, 2. Now in verse 16, he has in his right hand, the right hand is a symbol of authority. Jesus Christ is currently at the right hand of the Father. It's a symbol of protection and power, a place of honor a place of control, and Christ has the, in his right hand, seven stars, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, we'll explain them, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. Let's go to the next slide. Next one. Next one. There we go. See, I'm sparing you a lot of slides here this morning. Do you appreciate that? You don't, you don't look real thankful, but okay. <laughs> um, the two-edged sword here. You know, uh, Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth out of a, uh, a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go, grow out of his roots. And who is that? Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, some people see here the seven spirits of God. And depending on how you count, you can get seven, I guess. I get six because I don't see the Spirit of the Lord as being a separate thing here. But uh, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, Spirit of counsel and might, Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear uh, of the Lord. And shall make of him quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. Now, look at verse 4. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with what? The rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 
Let's go to the next slide. Part of the armor of God. Ephesians 6 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any what? 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Jesus is going to destroy the Antichrist with what? The spirit of his mouth. God's word is a two-edged sword. His countenance, the Bible says, was as the sun shines in his strength. Let's go to the next slide. This comes uh, right out of um, the song of Deborah and Barak, or Barak, however you pronounce it, in Judges 5.31. talks about the sun uh, going forth. Turn with me to uh, Matthew, Matthew 17. Matthew 17. James, I'm going to put you to work again. <laughs> Matthew 17. First book of the New Testament. Now, it's actually a shame, I think, sometimes that we have the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible. Because, honestly, they don't mean anything. They're very helpful. I'm glad that we have them. You know, I'm glad we don't have a long scroll here and I have to say, okay, uh, use your magnifying glass and find, you know, follow along with me on the scroll. They're very helpful. But sometimes they're misleading. Because sometimes the chapter and verse breaks come... Uh, at places they shouldn't come, I think. They're not inspired. They, they, they weren't added to the Bible until, you know, 1600s or something. Or, or maybe it's 1300s. Anyway, I told you to go to Matthew, what? But back up to the last verse of 16. And James, if you'll read verse 28 and then go to 17 and go through verse 7. All right, hold it right there. Jesus said there's some standing right here that are not going to taste of death until they see who? Son of Man, that's his messianic title, coming in his what? Kingdom, okay? So what James is about to read follows on the heels of what Jesus has just said. There's going to be some who don't die until they see Christ in his glory coming in his kingdom, okay? Are you following with me? All right, now go to verse, uh, read to verse 7, please. I'm sorry, James. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, 
for Moses and one for Elijah. While he spake, while he spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were so afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. All right. So this is not the first time John has seen him in the glorified state, right? So this is the second time now John has seen a glorified Christ. And that's amazing to me uh, that, John, that uh, John got to experience this twice. Um, and the response is, uh, is amazing. They were, they were terrified, weren't they? What did Jesus do? He put his hand on them and said, don't be afraid. So he's heard that before, right? You follow with me? Okay. Let's go back to Revelation now. Can we go to the next slide? John uh, experienced... Now, I didn't, I didn't coin this phrase. John MacArthur did. He calls it the trauma of holiness, and I just love it. One of my favorite things, my favorite uh, MacArthurism. The trauma of holiness is anytime a fallen human being comes in contact with God, he is completely undone. Isaiah, who's a holy man, sees God and he says, Woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. Job, there was nobody like Job. He was a perfect man and righteous. But when Job saw God... Job said, I abhor myself. <laughs> you know, we can feel pretty good about ourselves until we get a vision of who God is. And then we see him and our estimation of ourselves should be a whole lot less when we see how... Now, on your best day, my friend, you say, well, I'm a pretty good person. On your best day, your good deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. So if you're counting on your good works to get you to heaven, you're sorely mistaken. Ezekiel was a holy man. He was moved with fear. Daniel was a holy man. When he saw God, he fell at his feet like a dead man. When Paul, who was a holy man, when Paul saw Jesus Christ, notice, notice how he describes it. It says at midday, Acts 26, 13, at midday, O king, Paul's rehearsing his encounter on the Damascus road. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Is that what your Bible says? Brighter than the sun. Shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. Paul saw a glorified Christ. And when we had all fallen to the ground, you see that? We talk about Paul getting knocked off his horse, but they were all on their faces. He heard a voice. Paul saw... Now, the sun's pretty doggone bright, guys. Uh, any welders in here? Got anybody that knows how to weld? MIG weld, TIG weld? I know how to get that thing stuck real good. We all had to weld in shop class, right, Brother Andy? You remember that? Uh, we all had to weld in, uh, in, in shop and in ag class. And, and I still don't know how to do it well. But, but when you get in that curtain to weld, 
Do you sit there with your naked eyes and look at that thing? <laughs> well, not for long, right? Because you get what they call it, hot sand and eyes. You got to wear a mask, right? When there's a solar eclipse, do you look straight at the sun? Well, not unless you're a Nimrod. <laughs> no. Why? Because it'll burn your eyes. It'll fry your eyes, guys. And now, Paul says, I saw somebody that was brighter than the sun. And I've often wondered if that's why Paul had his eye problem. He said, well, I don't believe God would do that to him. Just ask Jacob. When he had the encounter with God, he limped the rest of his life. Was that a good limp? I was trying to... I don't have to try too hard, believe me. But anyway, the, the trauma of holiness here. All right, let's, let's look back in Revelation. Verse 17. And when I saw him... John says, when I saw him, he said, God's rad. He's my dad. He said, hey there, Jesus, long time no see. Give me a high five. Bring it in for a fist bump. No? His best friend, the one whom Jesus had entrusted his own mother to, John says, I better run and duck for cover. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid not his left hand upon me, but again, his right hand. You see this image of the right hand throughout the scripture. The sheep are on the right hand. The goats are on the left. And I'm not talking about you folks that are sitting here on the left-hand side to me. It all depends on how you're standing, right? If I'm standing this way, then y'all are the sheep and y'all are the goats. But... Um, the right hand is always a place of favor. It's a place of authority. It's a place of power. He laid his right hand upon me, and the first thing he says is, stop being afraid, John. You say, John was afraid. You better believe he was afraid. And if Christ were to come in this room, I don't want to keep belaboring the point, but if he were to come and manifest himself to us, how many times have we just thrown out these cliches? Oh, God, I wish you'd show up and show out. Well, if he did, I'm telling you what, there'd be a whole lot of people in need of a change of undergarments. Because it would be terrifying if he were to come and manifest himself in all of his glory. But folks, he's here this morning. But I want to ask you, in your heart of hearts and in your mind, have you sanctified him as holy and righteous? Do you see him as the glorified Christ? I, I've wrestled with this. I didn't want to talk about it, but I feel like I need to. There's a, real, there's a commercial that's real popular right now, and they play it during all the football games. If you watch these people, and, and it's a Jesus commercial. It says, he gets us. He gets us, you know. And the idea here is that Jesus is just a homeboy. You know, he's one of us. He knows what it is, and he does know what it is to be tempted in all points like as we are. But guess what? Jesus does get us, and that's why he came to the cross and died for us, because he knows that in us is no good thing. Yeah, he gets us, but do you get him? He's not on some common low level like one of us. He's high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. He's holy. He's righteous. He's glorious. He has all power and all authority in heaven and in earth. And I don't need him to get me. I need to get down on my knees and say, God, have mercy on me. That's what I need. 
I don't need him to get me. He knows me. And he knows there's nothing good in me. He laid his right hand on my Fear not, I am the first and the last. Let's go to the next slide. This is important. This phrase, I am the first and the last. Because God Almighty says that. In Isaiah 41, 4, he says, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I am the first and the last. And Isaiah 48 and 12, he's the first and the last. We are to see here, I believe, that Jesus Christ is indeed very God. He's God in the flesh. That's why all those I am statements in the Gospel of John. You wonder why there's seven of those in there? You know, because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with Him. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. Because when Moses talked to God, he said, Who shall I tell him has sent me? God said, You tell him I am that I am has sent you. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He's not the Father, but He's God the Son. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Now, He says, I am He that liveth. Some translations will say, I'm the living one. I'm the living one. And I was dead. Here's one for your Jehovah's Witness friends, or really anybody that doesn't believe that Christ was God. In verse 17, Jesus said, I'm the first and the last, right? So, in a, in, that means that Jesus is God, right? Because God's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. So, Jesus is the first and the last. And yet, we read in verse 18 that the first and the last died. And so I would point to anybody that doesn't believe in the, in, in the deity of Christ. I would say, did you know that God died? And they're going to say, what? And the Bible says right here that God died. But he, li he lives now. I am alive. Now, I like what the King James says in verse 18. Behold. Whenever you see that word behold in the Bible, take note of it. Because what the writer is, is intending for you to do is to just bask and take it all in and soak it in. Jesus lived. He's the living one. And he died on Calvary's cross. And he, it wasn't, he didn't just swoon on the cross. He died. He gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit to the Father. He died. He was put in that tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. Every religious leader of every cult of every other ism in the world, you can go and visit their mausoleum 
or their pyramid or their tomb or whatever. And you know what you'll find there? Their remains. You go to the tomb of Jesus, you're not going to find anything because the tomb's empty. The tomb's been empty for 2,000 years. Don't you know, if they could have produced a body, they would have? They hated Jesus with a passion. All they had to do was produce a body and it would be over. Think about that. Produce a body and it's over. But they were not able to produce a body. You know why? Because Jesus came out of the grave victorious. Alive forevermore with the keys of hell and death. Let's go to the next slide before I get wound up here. I'm going to get wound up anyway. John 5, 25 says that the Son has life in Himself. He has life in Himself. He is life. I love John 10, uh, verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I might lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me. The cross was not a tragedy. The cross was not an accident. The cross was an accomplishment that was planned before the foundation of the world. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. Jesus was in control of everything. Do you know even when he was in the tomb, he was in control? I preached a sermon on that one time. Everything that God was directing while he was in the tomb. Amazing. All the things that had to happen fall into place. I mean, it was amazing. God was in control of the whole thing. Um, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. But I like this next part. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Jesus told the religious leaders, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Not only did the Father have part in the resurrection, not only did the Spirit have part in the resurrection, but Jesus Christ took part in his own resurrection. You know why? Because he's God. Because he's the divine son of the living God. Says he's got the keys of hell. Well, excuse me, I skipped over a word there. Uh, in verse 18, amen. He says, I'm behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen. Amen is not just a church word, it's a Bible word. Amen? Right. And he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. Hell is often described in terms of gates. Gates of hell. Gates of death. Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and of death. Christ controls, and listen very carefully to this, and the only way you're going to get to heaven is if your name is written in his book. In the Lamb's Book of Life. I got a quote here from uh, Robert Thomas, great Bible commentator. Because of Christ's victory over death, no one can be a prisoner in death and Hades except by his own choice. If you end up in hell, it won't be because God sent you there. It'll be because you chose to go there. Because you rejected his offer of salvation. All right. Now we get to verse 19. I need you to pay attention. I know it's getting closer to your, I was going to say bedtime, but lunchtime. That was a Freudian slip there because I go home and crash. You know. <sighs> 
That's because I preach like a, a, a head with a chicken cut off sometimes. And yes, I said that right. I, you did hear that right. <clears throat> now we find, let's go to the next slide. The outline of the book of Revelation is found in verse 19. Next slide. Thank you. you see all these things I spared you this morning? Praise God. Write the things which you have seen. What did he see? He just saw the vision of the glorified Christ. Clothed down to the foot. Golden uh, sash. Hair like wool. Eyes as a flame of fire. Feet like burnished brass. He's seen that. Write the things which you've seen. And the things which are. And that's going to be chapters 2 and 3. That's the church age. Then there's a curious phrase. It says, in the things which shall be hereafter. Now, on the PowerPoint, it probably looks like hieroglyphics to you or some strange thing. Those of you who have ever messed around with uh, a, a Strong's Concordance, though, you'll understand what's going on here. The Greek word for hereafter in verse 19 is actually two words. It's meta tauta, or after these things, meta tauta, and I believe that that begins in verse in chapter four of Revelation. I believe that chapter one is the things that he has seen. I believe that chapters two and three are the things which are. These are the church ages. From chapter four, this is very important, guys. From chapter four until the rest of the book, God's not going to talk to the church anymore. There's a conspicuous absence of the church. The church is mentioned by name like 19 times, I think, in chapters 1 through 3. The Greek word is ekklesia, the called out assembly. The church is mentioned like 19 or 20 times in the first three chapters. After chapter 4, no more mention of the church. You know why? Because I believe the church is out of here, my friend. Because the king is coming, and we got a, a wonderful mode of transportation. Ain't that right, Brother James? Right? We're going. It ain't going to be on a jet plane. Hallelujah. We're going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, just like that. We're going to be caught up. But understand that when you get to Revelation 4, there's a, it's almost like it's hitting you in the face. In Revelation 4, it says, um, And I looked, and after this, metatauta, same phrase he uses in chapter 1. After this, I looked, and behold, the door was open in heaven. Um, and the voice which I heard was of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. And I will show you the things which must be, guess what, metatauta in Greek, hereafter. The book of Revelation gives you its own outline to understand it. Okay, let's finish this up. <clears throat> Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the lampstands. Uh, I think it's Dr. John Wolbert who gave some good advice. He says, we are not left here to use our sanctified imagination as to what the symbols mean in the book of Revelation. I'm going to tell you, in most of the cases, in the immediate context, the Bible will tell you what the symbols mean. You don't have to use conjecture or speculation or sanctified imagination. Most of the time, if it's not told to you directly within the context, you can probably find it in the Old Testament somewhere. And we'll see that as we go. So he tells you the mystery of the seven stars. 
that were in his right hand and the seven lampstands. The seven stars are the, the angels of the seven churches. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, symbols are explained. Now, some people believe that these are literal angels. You know, that every church has a guardian angel. And, and some pretty respectable people believe that. Um, I, but I have a problem with that, with that interpretation. Because when you get to uh, chapters 2 and 3, you find that Christ has issues and he holds these people responsible for the things that are going on in the church. And angels are sinless. The elect angels are sinless. Furthermore, it seems when you take the chain of command, remember the chain of command? God gave the vision to Jesus. Jesus signified it by an angel. The angel gave it to John. Then John writes to the seven churches. It would, it would seem silly to me, and I'm just an ignoramus, or at least that's what that little game at Cracker Barrel tells me. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I got to move on. I'm sorry. You're still thinking about food, aren't you? And, I, and I'm not making it any better. Um, but um, it would seem silly to me for God to go, all the tr go to all the trouble of the chain of command and get an angel to give the letter to John and then John to turn around and give it back to an angel. That, that doesn't make sense, right? Furthermore, we're not ever told to talk to angels or pray to them. We, we know they're around, but we're not to, uh, to interact with them, write letters to them. You know, or maybe some of you do. If you do, let me talk to you after service. We've we got issues, but... But anyway, let's go to, uh, oh, no, st stay right there, I'm sorry. Uh, stars. Now, full disclosure here, most of the time when you see a star, it is, a, or an angel, it means an angel. Stars are a rep representative of angels. However, the Bible does use stars as idioms of people. Daniel 12, for instance, uh, talks about the righteous and how they shine as the stars uh, in the firmament. Jude 1.13 talks about the false teachers, and they're called what? Wandering stars. Wandering stars. In Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verses 24 and 27, Luke 9.52, speak of three human people as, angel, as messengers. Same word. The Greek word is angelos, translated angel. The messenger, one is speaking of John the Baptist, one is speaking of some of John the Baptist's disciples, and another is Jesus sent messengers, and they're called angelos. The next one, which I think is convincing here, um, and I don't know if I got it up on the, yeah, I do. James 2, 25, that was a late edition. James 2, 25, the Bible says that Rahab the harlot received the messengers, the two messengers. Were they angels? No, they were two spies, weren't they? They were two human spies. So angels are used as idioms of human messengers. And it just makes more sense to, uh, to interpret it uh, that way. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Seven literal churches. And I'm going to tell you what, over the next few weeks as we go through these churches, and I've preached on this before, but... It's going to be very convicting because we're going to see, you may see a little bit of every church in the seven churches. I think that's why the number seven is it's representative of all churches. And we're going to see, if Christ were to write a letter to Deep Springs today, what would he say to us? 
Would there be things that he would command? I would hope so. Would there be things that he would correct? I suspect so. Let's be sensitive to that. I want you to know I'm being sensitive to it uh, as one of the messengers of the churches. I don't consider myself an angel. Some of you may think I am. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear what Judy said? She said, your mother's not here. Notice she didn't say Lori's not here. Uh, yeah. So understand, be sensitive to that, guys, that the Lord, the Lord is walking amongst the, the midst of the, the, the golden lampstands. Christ is in the midst of his church, and he's the high priest of heaven. Just like the priest in the Old Testament was tending the lamp to make sure the fire never went out, Christ is looking after us. Would you stand this morning? Whatever your concept of Jesus is, the book of Revelation shows us a picture of Jesus that none of the gospels show us, except for the Mount of Transfiguration for a brief glimpse. We see him as the, not just the lamb, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, the glorified son of God, whose countenance is brighter than the noonday sun. His eyes pierce through everything. Christ is going to judge sin, folks. Next week in the church, to the church at Ephesus, Jesus is going to say, there are some things that I hate. Did you know there are some things that Jesus hates? Yes. I hope it would not be anything that I'm doing or that you're doing. But his eyes see everything. And I trust the Holy Spirit this morning that he is here doing his work. And on Facebook and on the podcast or wherever you're listening this morning, that the Holy Spirit has done his work. And it may be, as you've been listening, that Christ has revealed to you that you are not really saved. You're not really born again. You've gone to church. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you're a member of a church somewhere, if not here. But you know that you've never trusted Christ completely as Savior. Today is your day. James said this earlier, but this may be your last opportunity. The trumpet could sound today. I believe that. This could be your last opportunity. Are you willing to spend eternity apart from Christ, apart from all the family of God, and for what? Jesus said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? What is it in this world that you want so bad that you would give in exchange your eternal life for? Christ has said, you can live forever. What a great deal. That's the great exchange, folks. That's the best deal going. That is, if you come to Christ and you say, I forgive me of my sins, I repent, I trust Christ, he will make you pure and holy in his sight. Maybe you're a member of the church at large, the body of Christ, and you know that you know there's things in your life that God's displeased with, and you don't need me to tell you, because you already know it. God sees and knows everything, but I'm here to tell you this, if you want to make it right, God said, come on, let's have a talk. Come, let's have a talk. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your trouble. And watch and see if he won't help you to get the victory over whatever that thing is that's been holding you down this morning. Would you come? Come as you are. <laughs>